podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Um, welcome to Slogging It, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we are nearing the end of February. Toby Tarrant will be uh, unhappy to know. Uh, tonight, we are. it's our absolute pleasure to welcome, it's quite an introduction, this, ex-Nots, an England all-rounder, now international coaching sensation, the man with <laughs> all of the nicknames, one of which is the general. It is Mr. Paul Franks. How are you, Pike? Oh, what a welcome that is. Thank you very much. <laughs> Great to be with you. <laughs> good, good. Uh, brilliant to have you with us. Um, just it, we, we tend to start this in a very similar way with all the guests we, we get on. Like First thing, we, we want to go right back to the start. How did you get into the most beautiful of games? Through a family connection, really. My dad played for a really, really long time. My granddad was associated with the cricket club. Um, I, managed, I managed to get involved from probably when I was six or seven, you know, going and watching dad and, and living 250 yards down the road from the ground. It was, it, it was what we did, um, spending six days a week, if not seven, there for, for the whole of the summer. Um, and it sort of went from there, really. How did you, how, how early did you get involved with the academy setup? I, it probably wasn't academy, it probably wasn't called an academy then, but how early did you get involved with knots? Uh, crikey, I, I don't think the word academy was even made by the time that was done. <laughs> um, I, I got involved, I was in the first intake of the knots under 12s, knots under 11s team which was 1989, which is, seems a long time ago now. <laughs> it was very old. Um, so, yeah, I got involved then. I played it under 12s a year young. Um, and it sort of went from there, really. I was, I was lucky in the fact that I was one of the only real juniors at my club. So I got exposed to playing cricket with some of the older guys quite quickly. So I was, right. I was netting with the, the seniors on a Thursday and a Tuesday all through the summer. And, and, and do my best to, to sort of stand my ground, if you like. And I suppose that really helped you, you know, with your pro career. I mean, you made your debut at 17. I can imagine you must have been playing with those pros from, a, from, from probably a bit of a younger age than that. And I mean, you know, how did it feel playing first-class cricket at the age of 17 while, while most people are still at school and uh, studying? I'm not saying you weren't studying, but yeah, I mean, what, what was that like? I was studying cricket, mate, if I was honest. I went yeah. through a <laughs> I was, and that, that's how it just sort of seemed to happen. I think from the age of 15, I really started to take the game really seriously. Like I thought, actually, I could be quite good at this. And that was quite a forward way of thinking. You know, as a 15-year-old, it, it's nowadays you're sort of told to wait a bit and be patient and go through the system a little bit and do it right. Whereas then I was chomping at the bit. I was playing adult cricket on a Saturday from the age of 15. I was playing in the best division in the county. So it seemed like a natural progression. Mm. I was playing in a really good team on a Saturday. I was playing in the Knotts age group team who were very strong. We made semi-final and finals of the national knockout for two years running. Wow. I then made my second 11 debut. So seemingly it was just a progression, which I was fortunate enough to be on. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, I was, I didn't think, I didn't overthink it too much because at that point I was just playing cricket. You know, I was just enjoying it. I was getting people out. I was enjoying trying to prove to people at every ground I went to that I was good enough to be there. Um, and that seemed to be a decent standpoint to, to keep moving from. That obviously moved you on to the 1998 Under-19 World Cup where England won. Yes, we did. With what's quite an amazing team, like Rob Key, O.A. Shaw, Stephen Peters. I mean, some of the people you played against in that tournament were unbelievable as I was going through it the other day. But 
Did you not want to let anyone else have a go? Have a go because you were opening the bowling and batting at three. Obviously, <laughs> you're the first class cricketer. I'm going to do what I like. But that must have been an incredible experience. It was, and, and I was, you know, we was lucky with the benefit of hindsight to achieve what we achieved because, you know, to win a, st- a global tournament um, with a load of lads who were really good mates. Actually, played a lot of good cricket together through that sort of 17s and 19s age group. Um, to achieve that is, is, is a really strong memory, a really fond memory of my career. And it, it seems a shame that it happened at the start, if you know what I mean, because it would have been, a, mm. it would almost have been nice for it to have happened later, but it didn't. Um, personally, it was very successful um, based on the fact that I actually played quite well. I, 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 I was inconsistent towards the end, which was frustrating, but at that time, other players came to the fore and we were more than good enough to, to win the competition, which was, like I say, very satisfying. Yeah, it's when you when you hear people talk about that, obviously Swanee does a lot of commentary and I've heard people they all talk about that sort of time. Obviously, I mean winning a global tournament must be incredible, but they, they, there's such a fondness that seems to be more than just about the cricket, like you say, it must be to that closeness. Yeah, it was. And we spent a lot of time, you know, tours back in back in that in that period of time were lasting we were there, we were away for three and a half months. So wow. it was, yeah, exactly. People just can't believe it nowadays, but we went and played a test match series and an ODI series. We did the full tour of South Africa and that lasted two months before the World Cup had even started. So, you know, we, we, you could have made a case to say, well, we were all burnt out and knackered, but actually we'd got to a point where we, some of us were starting to play better and we then found some rhythm and, and some confidence um, and we went from strength to strength. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, Swanee obviously came to play at Nottinghamshire. We, we shared a dressing room for a long time. But yeah. even when you meet up with some of these guys 20, 22, 23 years on now, it's what we talk about. Yeah. It's great. We will always have that shared memory of that special day at the Wanderers where we lifted the World Cup. And it's, it's, it, it, even, it gets better with time. It's very, 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 very satisfying. Yeah. Talking of good memories... Um... You made your your one day debut in two thousand at home. Um, how does how does that phone call go? Does it um, is it you know how how do you get the call saying that you're playing? Um, I'm not sure actually. I, I remember I remember David Graveney calling, and I'd and I'd had some dialogue with the selectors at that time because I've I'd been on an A trip that that winter and the previous winter, um, and I'd been close, and they they'd given me some reason to be optimistic based on continued good performance um but it wasn't it never felt like it was it was quite there so ironically what happened was that Matthew Hoggard got selected for the test matches a few weeks previously and I got he on the back of some really really good white ball performances actually on the on the television I then got picked for the ODI's tri series on the back of some really really good red ball performances so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it didn't really, it didn't really stack up. I think they were probably quite happy to have a look at both of us. And don't get me wrong, Matthew Hoggard was a wonderful test match bowler and did great things for England. But how the selections came about, I, I never quite understood. But David Graveney called. Um, I remember being in my lounge on my own um, and I'd just moved into, into uh, West Bridgeford at the time. So I'd only just moved out, I think. Um, and I, I remember sitting on the sofa and not quite taking it all in that I was going to be in the squad. And then you get dragged around with the squad for three weeks, having not played for a period of time. Um, and you're waiting for your chance, waiting for your chance, waiting for your chance. 
And then it didn't really dawn on me that I might even be playing in the game at Trent Bridge. But nobody said anything, even up until the day before. Nothing, nothing, nothing at all. Yeah. And then half past nine in the morning, get the tap on the shoulder, good luck, you're playing type thing. So the day of the game. Yeah, the day like of the literally game. an hour and a half before you due to walk out. It's like, yeah. good luck, mate. Yeah, good luck. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it maybe does describe um maybe why England weren't as successful as maybe we wanted to be during the kind of late 90s and early noughties, doesn't it? Had some very good players. Had some great players. You know, Alex Stewart, um, Darren Goff, Andy Caddick. You know, these these were all outstanding individual players at a time when it it needed more cohesive management. And Duncan Fletcher, I believe, started something at that point. It it was the start of that Fletcher era that led into the 2005 Ashes. And... We really got a hold of the systems that we used to look after players better, centrally contracted them better. Mm. We looked at, we managed workloads better. Um, and, you know, the guys that came through that, you know, initially were making a debut around about that time. Marcus Truscothic, Paul Collingwood, like I've mentioned, Matthew Hoggard went on to have fantastic careers for England. Um, I, I think it's really interesting that you, you talk about uh, managing workloads and stuff. And that's something that we're seeing a lot of. Uh, at, the, at the minute and I think through that maybe let's say 20 years things have improved to such a point now where it's actually managed in a, in a really good way maybe perhaps to the um, not all of the fans who perhaps don't understand are necessarily that happy with the way that players are being rested but certainly on this podcast a lot of what we try and do is talk about you know mental issues and stuff I mean um, you had a couple of quiet years after making your, your, your debut through a mixture of um, injuries and what have you um, what what was that? I mean, how did you overcome that? I, you know, I know you went back and had a you know then had a really successful club career post that, and obviously that, since then into coaching. But how have you seen the progression in how people are looked after mentally between then and and now? Well, it's, it's come a really long way. There were, I think there've been some really good, um, well-meant people in that area. I think I think for a lot of time, people didn't understand other people within cricket. They weren't interested in them on the level that we have to be now to acknowledge the warning signs and or any problems that might arise further down the track. So, you know, you only have to see the fallout from some of the Moen Alley stuff today, you mm. know, where people are talking about, you know, this is this is about Moen Alley's longevity within the game. If, if, if somehow he was forced to stay on that tour for the next month and a half or next month, however long it is, how, how's that going to affect him by the time the summer comes around? And how's that going to affect him in six weeks' time or eight weeks' time or 12 weeks' time? And no one quite knows the answer, but it's about trying to understand how, how people react and, and, and are they showing signs of going down a path we don't want them to go down? And I think our understanding of that now is becoming much stronger. Do you think with someone like Mo, um, funnily enough, I was talking to Joe Leach, who's who's his captain at at Worcestershire uh, the other day, who says he's never met a more talented bloke in his life. He says the way he spins the ball and the way he hits the ball, certainly, is just unbelievable. He said he's completely different level. Um, But Mo's had a a pretty tough run of it, hasn't he? When you think about quarantine and then quarantine in Sri Lanka, then for three weeks, getting out, and then, you know, a day later, then having to go straight back into six days of self-isolation once getting into India and stuff. He comes and plays one test match. It's done pretty well. Yeah. But then, you know, do these lads look at what is going on on social media? Because, you know, all the keyboard warriors or whatever you want to call them, 
he's taken a bit of a hammer in for the decision to to go home from some quarters for a week. I think they're talking about him maybe going back for the white ball leg of the yeah. Or what education do you think really needs to happen to and be given to the fans in order to allow them to understand properly what these lads are actually going through? Yeah, and and that's I think you've only got to look at the world as it is at the moment, based on the the last year we've had dealing with COVID-19 and how that's made everybody feel. And then trying to prepare yourself to be a sportsman within that time as well. And the adaptations you've had to make within that and the sacrifices you've had to make within that to be able to do what you love. Um, and it's all well and good saying they get paid very well to do this and do that and do the other and rah, rah, rah. And that's nothing to do with what I'm talking about. This is more to do with how human beings look after themselves to be the best they can be when they step on the field to play. Mm. So for me, Moeen has always been one of the most straight shooting blokes I've ever met. He gives great interviews. He's honest. He doesn't fudge around an issue. If he's asked a question, he'll stand mm. up for what he believes in. Um, and fair play to him for that. I think today hasn't necessarily been handled as well as it could have been in terms of the message that's come out of the England camp. Yeah. That's why, I'm, I'm, and again, I'm reading I'm reading, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm reading stuff and I'm sure they're sat there tonight thinking, crikey, we probably could have done that a little bit better. And I hope they are because that's, that, will be a, that will be progression for them. But knowing, knowing what I know in terms of how cricketers handle social media, a lot of them like to pretend they don't read it, but then it's oh. very, very difficult to avoid. Yeah. Very, very difficult to avoid because the danger is... If, if you choose to look at everything, you have to be prepared for everything. Yeah. If you're only going to look when it's good, then you're probably not doing it right. And if then somehow it goes around the corner a little bit and you get some nasty stuff, how are you going to filter that? How mm. is your filter? How's your support network going to help you through that period of time? Because keyboard warriors across sport, and we've seen it all with regards to professional uh, football recently and the level of racist abuse that's going on across yeah. platforms nowadays, it's just unacceptable. And mm. until, until we get to a point where those platforms are going to do something more to shut it down, then the players have got to be really sensible about how they use it to promote. And when it's used well, it's, it's used positively. And when it's not used well, it can cause real issues for players. I know that for certain. I think just going back to your own experience a little bit uh, before we move on slightly, um, your international career didn't go the way that you would have hoped or you, you, your family, let's say. Uh, and unfortunately, that is just one of one of the things with professional sport, isn't it? I think, you know, you can have people like Jimmy Anderson who, who excel at one end. And, but unfortunately, there, there are the stories that happen the other way. And um, how did how did your support network help you through the the experiences that that you had, which must have been a pretty trying time? Yeah, it was. And you're right that the, the two years after after having made my debut, I, I strongly believed that I was going to get back. I thought I, I thought actually I'm I'm all right here, and I, and I was and I was with the benefit of hindsight, and it's the easiest one to have. I wasn't right, and and it was. And I'm not to say I wasn't playing well at the time. But I think the impact of the game that I'd had, you know, I, I thought it was the end of the world. I thoroughly expected to walk onto Trent Bridge and have the, the greatest day of my life and take five for and mm. hit the winning runs. Because that's the way I'd always been. <laughs> you know, that, and nobody, <laughs> yeah. nobody, nobody had ever told me any different. Nobody had told me that that's, you shouldn't be thinking that today, mate. That's not yeah. what this is about. I was, I was working through something 
that I wanted to go onto that field in front of 17,000 Nottinghamshire fans and then millions of people watching on TV all around the world and show them how good I'd been based on the fact that that's all I'd done for the previous 10 years. So emotionally, I probably wasn't where I needed to be for the next two years. You know, I I was trying too hard. I was trying to overcome the upset of the day and I was trying to shortcut that and get back to where I needed to be. And ultimately my performance has paid the price because I was just trying too hard and try, you go and try and tell a sportsman they're trying too hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's an impossible thing to measure. And I, I have that, you know, with my coach's hat on now, you know, trying to get people to take a breath and take a step back and just let themselves be a little bit. Does that is that heavily influence how you are now as a coach in terms of the way that you deal with players and stuff? Like we spoke to when we interviewed Simon Jones, he was very open and honest about the fact that I think only Kevin Peterson reached out to him after that, you know, career ending injury. KP was the only one that actually took time out of his day to and as many bad things as you hear about Kevin Peterson, Simon will defend him to the hilt. Because yeah. he, he is like, he is literally the only bloke at the end of that, two, after that 2005 series, who reached out to me to make sure that I was all right. And what was the, what happened, you know, from a management perspective, you know, following on from your situation, did anybody reach out or is it that, you know, this is a tough man's game, this is professional sport, survival of the fittest. And at that point, it, because mental health and et cetera, weren't really considered as important as they are today. They just kind of left you to your own devices. No, by, no, they were all there, and I won't have, I, I won't say that people didn't certainly d- didn't turn their back on me. Um, I think much like anything, when when form goes, people look for reason why form's not there, why performance isn't there first and foremost. And I, I naturally, um, I've, I've got this shield. I, I, I protect myself. I'm a professional yeah. professional man. I wear this, I wear this shield, and I don't let anybody past it. So there's there's bits that not even my family are getting to. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that applies still now, you know, I, I'm, but I am, I'm a very different cricket coach to what I was a cricket player. And that's okay. the bit that, that's the bit that some people still won't have. I was a certain style of cricket player. I had a lot to say for myself. I, you know, I happily go and confront, you know, <laughs> I happily go and confront, um, I'd get myself into strife and I'd go through it and I'd keep going and I'd keep going and I'd keep going. Now, there's still bits of that in me, but 20 years down the track, I like to think I handle it better mm. more, more often than not. That, that, I think, comes with experience. So ultimately, the best people around me at that time were the ones that I was closest to. So that will be my, my now wife, who was my, my girlfriend at the time, my mum and dad, um, my extended family, um, and the core of the support network at Nottinghamshire. You know, because I, I went through a period where I suffered a really bad injury shortly on the back of that, mm. where I didn't play for the best part of a year. So the, the challenge that injury brings over an extended period is even worse than not playing well, because you can't even mm. go and try and put it yeah. by. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, I can remember sort of that was when I was coming into the not set up when just after your England stuff and being involved at that time. It was it was sort of, I can remember looking, it was, you were one of the people I looked up to growing up. You were two or three years older than me, making your debut at 17. And it was all a bit like, right, come on, come on. You made your England debut. And it was like, right, every, this is everything that's good about Knott's cricket coming through. 
and to see it not work out for you the way we all thought it would. Everyone, everyone in Nottinghamshire cricket, it wasn't just Paul that thought he'd walk onto the pitch and hit the winning runs and get five. Everyone involved in Nottinghamshire cricket thought, Frankie's got this, it's fine. That's there's the next step. And to see that, I think kind of had us all in shock a little bit. Um, but to see Paul the way that Paul walked through it was 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 hard to be involved in and 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 to, to go through. But you you sort of reinvented yourself after the injuries and, and that time into a you kind of floated about the order, but then found your role at the top of the order a little bit. Then you would uh, an opening batter, top order batter who bowled a bit, as opposed to a, a bowling all rounder. Was that an easy thing to do, or was that just your spirit? Yeah, I, I I say it was and it wasn't. It was the only thing I was allowed to do for quite a long period after my injury. Hmm. So I'd, I'd come back from major knee surgery and for a long time not allowed to do much, not allowed to do much. But actually, you can go and bat. You can, you can go and do some batting work, go and do something that you're going to get some satisfaction from that connects you back to the game, which eventually you're going to come back to. So that probably allowed me to go and be just free for a little bit. And it, and it gave me some real something to focus on. So my focus at that point wasn't thinking about bowling on the 2nd of June or whatever the date was I was coming potentially coming back on. This was at the start of November. And I was like, right, I can start batting now. And... I'd never really taken it seriously. I'd always enjoyed it. And I'd always seen myself as somebody who could impact a game. But if I was going to be consistent at a level that I knew was going to help me out, because I wasn't even sure at that point whether I was going to ever get back to what I was pre-knee injury from a bowling point of view. So I was think, I was sort of thinking, right, okay, if, if, I, if I get this right, I'm going to be in a good position to command a different position in the team. You know, can I, can I push myself up the order a little bit? Can I get myself to a place where I understand my game better? I'm in better shape come selection time and I go from there. So I think it, it sort of happened by accident, but it was one of the benefits of having been injured. You were really fortunate to win the, the county championship twice. I mean, the first time was in 2005. <laughs> um, did you expect an open top bus too? Or, um, well, <laughs> Uh, which, which, which of the two was your favourites there? I mean, obviously the first one must have been good, but, you know, you know two, five years apart, you know, what, what, what's the sort of thought process there? Yeah, uh, 2005 was great because it was the first time we'd done it in a really long time. Um, and arguably the team had be bigger and better names in it. As Stephen Fleming was captain. Mm. Um, you know, I was still quite a young man at that point. Um, personally, I didn't play as much in that, in that season as I wanted to. And I didn't have the personal success that I wanted to, but nonetheless, it, it meant so much to me. I was a Not I'm Nottingham lad to win the championship. Yeah. It's the dream ticket. You're off and running. This is something we've achieved as a group. Nobody will ever take it away from us. Off we go. So the next sort of four or five years, the progression I went on as, as a player took me to a point where in 2010, I was, I was in the team. I was playing in the team as, as the all-rounder. Um, we didn't necessarily have the Stephen Flemings of, of the world in our team, but what we did have was a good understanding of how we were going to go about it and guys who were doing their job. So my own personal success within 2010 made 2010's championship season more, more satisfying. And that's I think that's just a natural feeling. You feel like you've contributed so much more and... It's great, and off you go. And and so to me, that was that 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 was the satisfying one. 
Uh, you played your last first-class game for the county 2013, officially retiring in 2015. Um, I think, you know, obviously going on to your coaching career that you, as you have, um, you led the second 11 to the county title that year. Was that a push? Was that pushed towards coaching something that was well considered and something that you discussed with the club as in, can I go and, you know, figure out how I'm going to help these youngsters move with a view to becoming a coach further down the line? Um, initially, I wanted to get into coaching, I think, for the wrong reasons. Uh, I look back now and I think when I first started working through um, my ECB stuff and my accreditations and bits and pieces, I thought I was just going to be good because it's all I'd ever known. Since six years old, I'd been a cricket person who understood the recreational game, understood the professional game, had travelled around the world. I thought, well, I'm, I'm, I'm nailed on here. This is fine. No problem. Um, as I gradually got into it, I, I learned there was so much more to it. So by the time 2013 came around, I was still under contract to play professionally for another, I think, 18 months, two years. So I wasn't in any rush to retire. I know when I walked off that field against Somerset in 2013, I didn't know I was done there. Right. So it was, it was around about a time when a, an opportunity came around. Um, there was a place up for grabs on the, coaching, on the coaching team. I applied for the job. The job then it was offered. And I made the decision that that was where I wanted to go based on the fact that that was the longevity in my future career as opposed to hanging on to something where, you know... I wasn't hanging on in first-class cricket, but it was becoming difficult. I'd been going at it for a long time, lots of overs under the belt, lots of scarring from success and failure. Um, you have lots of very lonely days within a first-class career where you don't go home satisfied with your work. Um, mm. it's, just how, it's just how it is. And it's not to say you don't enjoy them, but you, you, you have to come back the next day and scrub up and go again. And it probably got to a point where I'd had enough of that. <laughs> and I didn't miss it at all. I didn't miss it at all. Um, and thankfully to this day, I haven't missed it. Um, but I love coaching now, I think, for the right reasons. And yeah. that's not to say that I'm not trying to improve all the time. It's, it's more a case of understanding why I do it, what I do it for, who I do it for, um, and taking it from there, really. Brilliant. Well, look, that it concludes the... Uh... Amazing first half of our interview with the, the General. After a quick note from our partners, the Lord's Taverners, uh, please make sure you join us for the second half. The Lord's Taverners is the UK's leading youth cricket and disability sports charity. We break down barriers and empower disadvantaged and disabled young people to fulfil their potential and build life skills. Our cricket programmes support some of the most marginalised and at-risk young people in the UK, using sport and recreation to build links and encouraging groups to play sport together. We tackle issues such as knife crime, unemployment, radicalisation and also isolation, something we are all feeling right now. Last year, our programmes impacted the lives of more than 12,000 young people and, with your support, will help even more in the future. Find out more and make a donation at lordstaverners.org and help us to continue our life-changing work. Thank you. Welcome back. Uh, thank you to our partners, the Lords Taverners. Again, don't forget, if you want to contribute to what is a fantastic charity, you can text TAVS11. 
to 70331 to donate £3, just to make sure you have the bill payers' permission and you are over 16. Back to you, Pike, the general, Mr. Paul Franks. Um, on, your coaching career seems to have gone mental um, since taking on that first role at Knotts. You've got multiple coaching jobs from head coach of the UAE, uh, involved in the North v South series that was on Sky in Barbados, and then most recently, Team Abu Dhabi in the T10 League. Um, that must have been, I know we spoke about it before, but that must be a bizarre thing to coach in, right? Yeah, that's fair. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a format that's, that's growing. Um, I think it's a format that won't necessarily press everyone's buttons. Um, and I understand that. Uh, I understand where they're coming from because I don't think until the opportunity came around that I was even thinking about T10 as a viable coaching future. Um, what I've come back with is, is some clear ideas of where T10 can benefit the game um, and seeing T10 as a viable option to help developing nations to help cricket get on a global platform at potentially the Commonwealth Games or the Olympics mm. uh, and really give us a footing in amongst nations where cricket isn't that popular at the minute. And I think we have a responsibility as stakeholders within the game to look at every opportunity to grow the game as best we can. We had a chat when you were out there after um, after one of your games and we were talking about how the, it's the, the difference between, it must be completely alien, going from coaching knots in four-day cricket where it's well for a start you've got 11 professionals and not that obviously they're getting paid in that but you've got 11 first class cricketers to coach in a 10 over game where you've got a mix of players from Chris Gale to Uncle Tom Cobbley from Nepal for example not that there's everything wrong with that yeah. but that must be you've got you've got 60 balls and that's it you've got right this how does that vary Ultimately, mate, and I suppose it's one of the things we touched on, you know, a little bit earlier in the conversation is it's just about people and it's about it's about understanding people. So understanding the reasons that they want to be there, the reasons that they are there and they're all different. Mm. Um, and why Kushal Mala as a 16 year old from Nepal is rubbing shoulders with the likes of Chris Gale um, is what makes the competition great. I think what we did see across T10 is that there's quite often um, that variable in terms of quality. You know, Nicholas Poran was arguably the player of the tournament. He was up against some bowlers who would never, ever, never, ever bowled at Nicholas Poran before and may never bowl at Nicholas Poran again mm. because they've come, from, they've come from places where that was, they were living the dream on that day. So it made it, <clears throat> it, made it look, um, at times, you know, made the cricket, you know, arguably devalued. But mm. I suppose that's part of the journey that the format has to go on. Um, is if you're going to attract the biggest and best players to that competition more consistently, that competition is going to grow, grow legs. And, yeah. I, and I think it will, I th like I say, I think it will continue to have a, a platform on the global calendar because players, players like it because it's short and sweet. They can normally, outside of COVID year, they'll normally pop in and pop out and they've done their job and off they go. And they love it because it's quite relaxed. Mm. And off they go, they can go and have a swing and the bowlers can try and bowl Yorkers and slow balls and and it, it creates a normal bums-on-seats mentality. Hmm. I guess from... I, I watched a fair bit of it. Uh, just a couple of quick questions for me. Like, um, a, I, I can only imagine that the lads were either at the ground, in the gym, or eating steak, chicken, and broccoli, because like, just to be able to try and launch it into the middle of next week every time that someone lets go of it. 
Um, but how? what I'm really interested to find out is, you know, you, you talk about 16-year-olds from Nepal, must have found that environment to train and learn from someone like Chris Gale, incredible. But as a, as a coach, did you have to be quite malleable to, to how you went about things? And you say, like, adapting to different people, or, I mean, these guys must have learned an invaluable amount from, you know, a professional coach such as yourself to then take home to improve cricket in their own country where they wouldn't necessarily have access. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you hope so. And that's certainly one of the things that I try to have at the forefront of my mind all the time is, am I adding value? Because if I'm not adding value, I might as well not try and add anything. Mm. You just sit back and let it it be for a little bit. So you're right. Players learn from players as well as they learn from coaches. Mm. And And that's the real strength of our game, I think. They watch other players play. And then they think, right, I want to play like Nicholas Poran. I want to play like Chris Gale. or I want to play like De Villiers or Coley or Root or whoever your fancy is. Mm. So w- within that, I think there's the opportunity for um, this competition to have perhaps some more structure within its drafting process to make sure that if you're going to have, like I said, Kushal Mala or Leonardo Julian, like we had from the West Indies as our two young players, mm. but both very talented boys, but how you how you get them the opportunity to keep playing in that team? So yeah, yeah. where that where that goes for, with Team Abu Dhabi moving forward for them is going to be really important. You wouldn't mm. want it just to be a one time thing. Mm. You would want it to have some consistency to it. Mm. So you're right. I think I think players players like to know that coaches care. So showing you're available, showing you're prepared to give a bit, showing you're prepared to put your arm around them when they need an arm around them showing them you're prepared to be absolutely dead straight with them all the time, even if they don't like it, yeah. I think you're onto a good one. Yeah. Talking of consistency, I mean, you, pay, you played for the best part of 20 years for Nottinghamshire, and you've been there now as a coach for the best part of, what, eight years? So, so almost 25 years in role. Um, from, a, from a coaching... Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you started young, though, Frank. You started really, really young. <laughs> You know, when you look at your coaching aspirations, I mean, is the next level up for you to be the head coach of not of Nottinghamshire, or or is there is there other aspirations right now? I think, look, I, I think the dream job oft, often doesn't materialise. So, I, I yes, yes, I'd love to be, and I've got a great head coach who I work for at the minute, um, and I really, really love my job. So, I'm not going to say no. I'm not aspirational because that makes me sound like I just want to sit in, sit in situ and just do my job for the next however long, and then ponder off into retirement and play some golf. That's not what it's about. <laughs> I think the one thing I have tried to do is, is seek other opportunities outside Nottinghamshire. So as, as Robbo mentioned, you know, to work in the UAE, um, as I have done before, to work in the T10, you know, to go and work with a different dynamic of player whenever possible, takes you out of your comfort zone. It takes you out of a place where you know you've been for such a long time and you know everybody from the gateman, to the senior player, to, to, to everybody who comes in the ground, you take yourself to a place where you have to go again and you have to ask yourself questions every day about what you're doing. And I think I'm, I'm really confident that that will continue to stimulate me when I come back to Trent Bridge. It'll make, make sure I'm asking the questions that I need to be asking of myself every day when I come to work. Um, so we, we know that your dad was obviously a huge character, a massive part of Farnsfield Cricket Club, which has been obviously your club, uh, your club cricket side. Uh, and we know um, took great pleasure in hearing that he abused Robbo uh, a number of times from from the boundary edge uh, before sadly passing away in 2016. Um, you spoke to Robbo about the fact, you know, you that, that 
provided you with some struggles and you've only kind of recently been able to start talking a bit more openly about it. Um, how did you go about, was it just a, a progression of time that allowed things to maybe get easier? Did you seek help to, in, in terms of trying to deal with it? Ah, look, well, mate, it was, it was a really tough sort of 24 months. I sort of lost my mum first, um, okay. which was the hardest bit, arguably, because she was my emotional parent, if you like. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. She was the one I used to go to for, you know, a shoulder to cry on and, and she'd package me up and then dad had, dad had tapped me around a little bit and get me back on point and get me ready to play <laughs> yeah. again. And that was, that was how it was. And so initially losing mum came as a real surprise from nowhere. Um, <clears throat> dad had a few underlying health issues which we knew of we thought we had it under control and then you know 18 months on from mum passing um, things got quite bad quite quickly um, thankfully if, if you're going to lose both of your parents in a, in a really small window you don't want any suffering and yeah. I was so you know to have lost my parents at an age where you know they were both in you know in the late 60s mid 60s you know sent so unfair but I also mm. didn't want any suffering. And initially, I think for 24 months after that, I was, I was quite angry. Um, yeah. I asked a lot of questions about why me and, and what, why, because I'm an only child, it was why me, you know, why have I been left with all this to deal with? Why do I feel how I feel? Where, where has everything gone that I'm used to? Mm. Um, and like, like Robbo said, it's, it's only probably in the last year that I've allowed myself a better state of mind about it all. I've tried to convince myself that everything's I'm, I'm better with it now. Mm. Doesn't mean it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt when I think about it. Yeah, doesn't mean I don't miss them yeah. both amazing to an amazing level. Um, I think it's time, honestly, mate. I think it's time. I you know my, my wife wishes I'd gone and seek some help initially when my mum passed away, and I, I chose not to. Um, and I. I sort of brushed it over a little bit. Mm. Um, if, I, if I was to go through it all again in, you know, back to 2014, I probably would seek some proper yeah. advice for certain. I think that um, obviously I, I've done my episode, Robbo's done his episode and, and talked about, and Eugene will do his. I think all of the guests that we've had on here have actually, it's, it's been really nice that we, we just started this to try and highlight more mental health things. But everyone said to us, it's great. Once you just get to talk about it a little bit, it just feels like there's just a little bit of that weight almost just you, you feel like you're sharing it with people. And as long as it's within a trusted environment, then, you know, it, it you know, a mixture of time. But I think talking about it, it certainly does help. And, you know, as, a, as we always say, you know, you, people don't have to seek professional advice, but it is there. There are many different outlets that people can approach. But and we would certainly encourage people to try and do that uh, if they don't feel like they have family and friends who would be able to necessarily help them uh, with whatever they're going through. Um, I mean, you must take great pride in the fact that your parents, you, you, your coaching career was just kind of taking off around that time. Um, but you must take great pride in, in what you've achieved and knowing that your parents would be incredibly proud of what you've done. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. And I, I see a lot of, I see an enormous amount of my mum and dad in me, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. Everybody says I look more like my dad by the week. That's fine. I can live with that. Um, <laughs> thank you, Simon. Um, but it's it's more it's more the empathetical side of my mum that I'm really yeah. trying to to get right and and explore more the emotional connection with um, how she used to help me. 
in allowing me now to help others. So yeah. me understanding myself better. So yeah. that sounds like I'm waxing on a little bit here, but it's part of the journey I've been on. It's like, is, is knowing when to say stuff and when not to say stuff, what tone I use, you know, don't just be the same old, same old every day. Every set of circumstances is different. Mm. Um, and trying to understand people. And mm. it's not easy. It's not straightforward. Every day is different. Every set of circumstances are different. I think as a captain and as a coach, I, I, I've, I've talked about this uh, on mine. As a captain, I, I really struggled the first couple of years because I'd been in a, you may have played against him, a guy called Neil Turk. Um, he, he used to play for Sussex. Um, yeah. and he captained me at Wimbledon and he was like, literally, it was like an army general. And it was, you know, and you, it was like his way and, that, and we were very successful. So that seemed like, okay, that's an acceptable way to do it. And, you know, he was a great captain. Um, but I tried to captain like that, and for first two years, the lads hated me. Like, and it just, and, but eventually, it's and it is a process of elimination, is it? You start to learn about, okay, you need to talk to this guy in this way, and this guy in another way, and it is about having to have a different relationship as a captain, and I'm sure as a coach, with everybody, where you can have that the two different styles of conversations. One where it's like, right, sort your shit out. You're not doing what we need you to do. But also, then you'll give them a cuddle and let them know that they can approach you when they're feeling a bit vulnerable about any kind of different subject and that you're there as an ear. And that's absolutely right. And I think, I think even now I'm still going through that people seeing me as a different bloke to the player that I was. Mm. I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to portray myself as the same human being, but a different bloke, Yeah, if, if that makes sense. That's yeah. not to say I, I don't still have the same values the same desire for success, the same mm. stuff that that, dro that drove me as a six-year-old boy to want to love the game forever. But understanding that certain things will work at certain times, like I can still be the general at certain times, Yeah. but the general doesn't need to appear all the time. Mm. <laughs> he doesn't, no, because, and the lads laugh about it and, and, and they, that it's part of the humour of, our changing room they sort of know when the general's coming out a little bit when certain things that we don't compromise on need to come out and then mm -hmm. there'll be other times when the general gets put away for a few days and he gets left to his own Brilliant. back to club cricket now i know you've got like you say you know recreational cricket and you've got a huge love for farnsfield and 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 that sort of thing what does that club mean to you um, mate, it gave me everything. It gave me every opportunity I needed from, you know, like I say, from when I was putting the tins on the scoreboard as an eight-year-old um, through to loving the game. You know, it, it gave me everything. And the people there, the coaches there, they invested in me as a person. They saw something in me. They didn't overcoach me. They didn't try and tell me to be anything that I wasn't. So it wasn't a case of, right, Paul, you must do it this way. You must do it this way. It was a case of me understanding what the, the message is and then going and being me. Yeah. And I was allowed to be me. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I think I hit off one of the greatest influences on my career as a man you'll know very well, Rob, is, is Stuart Burroughs. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. At, the age of, at the age of 12 years old, he was very comfortable to let me be me. And I was a very different 12-year-old to a lot of other 12-year-olds. I came back to Stuart again 
just after that important time at 16 years of age where it was a case of right hang on so now you're going here. is it's sort of are you heading towards professionalism or are you moving away from professionalism and he pushed me in the right direction and he spent a lot of time connecting back to Farnsfield during those formative years to make sure he was watching how I was going yeah. and they would be honest and frank when things weren't right he would always come and find me um, and as a cricket club as a whole they provided me with a great support network to and I love going back there you know mm. despite the fact that the knees have given up and I'd rather be playing golf now on a Saturday than playing cricket <laughs> um, you know I love going back there to sit on a Thursday night when the young ones have finished training and sit and watch um, and I hope to sit on a bench one day and and find a young a young robo and abuse him Make make sure make, make sure he knows he, make sure he knows he's gone for twenty four in his last three overs. Mate, Papa Wick and Limby twos, mate. If you just if you just want to find their fixtures this year, if you want to come and abuse Robbo, don't you worry about that. Oh, it was unbelievable. They used to have a lad who opened the bank called so Steve Musgrave. It was a good player. It was on the knots books, and I can remember he hit me everywhere, absolutely everywhere. And just I walked back, and I always used to have a chat with the guys on the boundary behind because that's me. I'm a big goofy looking bloke. And, <laughs> Muzzy, I, to be fair, Muzzy had hit me for 24 in two overs, never mind, never mind three. I didn't get three overs that game. I turned around <laughs> and Frankie's dad's going, that's not gone well for you, has it? I was like... Brilliant. Man, a few, anyway, man, a few words, but they were always... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he did have a strop at me once and I bowled a lap with the eye fully. I, I bowled the guy and he was he almost came on the pitch going it's a no ball it's a no ball I was like I'm not arguing with him but I don't think it is <laughs> unbelievable I can um, I can actually see you as a flat track bully um, Paul I mean you know spanking everyone around from a club <laughs> perspective you must be a big fish in a small pond you know was there any bowlers that um, that sort of gave you a bit of a hustle um, that, that that you can remind us of Trust me on one thing, huge. There are only very few flat tracks in the Nottinghamshire Premier League. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say. Right? So I, I, it was more for the bowlers than the batters. You had to work hard for your runs. Mm. Um, however, there was one man, and, and the, the, the nemesis of this man will live on way past. And he's still performing now, and he's the same age. Do as I know him. who this is? I think yeah. you probably is this who I think it is. Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> one man who used to, uh, uh, we were cruising, and I remember. I was, we played on a really good wicket at Papawick. I think it was one of Johnny Thrower's finest. Uh, <laughs> and I think I was 70-odd not out. I think we needed, I don't know, 50-odd off 16, 17 overs. And we were playing really well. Jim Rhodes comes back on. I was like, right, listen, chat, chat, chat with the bloke at the other end. Um, listen, it'll well three or four overs. We don't need to rush. Let's just see him off. We'll be fine. Anyway, first over goes all right. Second over goes all right. I've got, I'm, I'm playing quite well, actually, by all counts. And next, honestly, he bowled me this ball. And the, as Robbo will verify, the Premier League balls at certain times do not move off the straight. No. And this is a good <laughs> pitch. And I'm thinking, and, and he, bowled, he clean bowled me. And I thought to myself, how the bloody hell has that clean bowled me? <laughs> I walked off. I walked off thinking, oh, we'll still win this. And he won him the bloody game. <laughs> Continued to take Premier League wickets well into his 40s. And yeah. fair play to him because he absolutely loves it. It's it's funny, Jim. Last year we played against Kimberley, and Kimberley are a good side, good side, loaded load of ex Knots lads in it. 
And you could see him. Jim's just warming up. He bowls off three paces, just swans in, hits the ditch. He used to be quick when he was, I mean, he grew up with Paul and then that type of thing. He used to have half a yard, but now he's just, it's the pitch. Their team talk was solely about Jim Rhodes. <laughs> and now they were going to deal with him. And then the worst thing was, they sent these two like naive young lads out first off. And we were like, they've got all big guns, all the good players. And I was like, well, they're hiding down the bottom of the odd for These two, poor two young lads didn't have a clue what was going off. So he says, right, they, these lads haven't seen him before. Two overs in, they're non for two. Two young lads that, one bowled off stump, gone away. One bowled middle stump, come back in. And then Kimberly, I think we bowled him out for about 100. I think we then got bowled out for 95, so it was irrelevant. But he's, <laughs> he's a fantastic bowler still. Yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah. Wait, wait till April, mate. He'll be cleaning up again. <laughs> yeah not wrong um obviously you've spoken about getting down to Farnsfield and, and wanting to do that with all the demands and obviously you've got a young family now your two daughters are big time into dancing aren't they I believe um yeah they are. Get, <laughs> that must take up a lot of time do you get down there as much as you hoped or uh I say I say yes I obviously last year was quite unique in the fact that I, I didn't get the chance at all mm. um which you know was disappointing. I still speak to a lot of people down there regularly. I sort of, I don't like to use the word advise, but I sit on the cricket committee, if you like, and sort of a silent voice, a bit of a sounding board more than anything for stuff that goes on at the cricket club. I hope this year, if we if we go back to a normal cricket season, to have a little bit more time. Mm. Um, quite what our fixtures will look like professionally and, and and stuff. I'm not quite sure yet in terms of as we move through the season, but I certainly hope to get down there more this year than I did last year. Uh, and I guess finally, what what does the uh, what does the future look like for the general? What what's the what's the big plan? Oh crikey! Um, well, in short, it involves another two days in isolation after a return <laughs> from Abu That's the short term. <laughs> that's the short term picture. Um, hopefully, we get the county season up and running, and we and we start and play really really well in the early part of the summer in the Red Bull stuff. Really looking forward to the 100 and what that might bring uh, and, and the, the doors that that might open personally and for the players involved. And, and then take it from there, really. Um, if life's taught us anything over the last year, it's probably not to look too far ahead. Yeah. Um, let's just sort of take it, take it as it comes. Um, and to keep enjoying what I do, I was, despite the fact we did two months last year, we, we did a month of prep in July, and then we did August and September and a little bit of October. I was absolutely knackered in October. I was as tired as I've ever been at the end of a season since I moved into coaching. And I thought to myself, right, what do I need to do here? So I'm trying to prepare myself subtly differently for this season in terms of my headspace, um, mm. making sure that I've got a number of key stuff to measure myself against and make sure we're measuring the team against and what progress looks like still. Mm -hmm. um, and it has to be all about making progress, uh, but, you know, both individually and collectively. Uh, well, hopefully Simon and I will be able to uh, hit, hit a few, uh, play a bit of stick and ball with you throughout the, uh, throughout the summer as well. We'll come down, to, um, come down to see you at the Nottinghamshire. Obviously, it would be our pleasure to invite you up to Sherwood for a, a few hacks. Um, but yeah, for now, Franksy, uh, thank you so much for all of your insight, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure for the three of us to, chat to you i have absolutely no doubt that anybody and everybody who listens to this will be able to take uh, a huge amount away from what you've had to say so thank you so much mate my um, pleasure
we we now um we we now get to try and take some money off you. <laughs> I don't know if Robbo warned you about this. I haven't done any research on it at all. Well, he said he said that he said that apparently your contract for the uh, the T10 was massive. So um, we're going to try we're going to try and take a tenner off you. I believe he said <laughs> yeah. that. Obviously, it. obviously, I know that. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah, double up um, as his agent in my spare time. Um, so we're going to ask you five questions. Uh, each one holds a value of two pounds, uh, and uh, the money all goes to the Lord's Taverners. So, and Robbo will match it. So, whatever your commitment is, Robbo will match it. Um, so, right, uh, Robbo can't be involved. So, as he you ask the questions, questions. yeah, so I'll ask you, him, and you can do the answers. You do get good. a bit of leeway. There's no real set style uh, for how much leeway he gets it depends how much we like the guest or not i guess is, is, is <laughs> right, leeway um so it could be quite tough mate um, and i'm not deciding <laughs> no you can't uh, right how across formats how many professional wickets did you take there's a total there is a total and i should know this i think i think it's 704 Oh, I thought you were going to get it. It's then. close. Yeah. It is close. <laughs> Not close enough, though, I don't think. It was oh, 704 2. Oh. <laughs> 742. Oh. Right, okay. I thought you'd it. I thought, I thought yeah. you were going to get That's it. Right. it looks like you... uh, right, two quid. There we go. Uh, you won the under 19 World Cup with England in 1998, but who was the leading run scorer in the tournament? Bloody hell. Um... Can I give him a clue? No. Oh. I don't think... Oh, I don't think it was one of our lads. It probably wasn't any of the Kiwis. That's a clue, Robbo, shaking your head. <laughs> you you think, won't look him. I, oh, I think it's probably someone who's gone on to have a good career, probably as an international. Um, <laughs> Nodding your head is also a clue. <laughs> Who was the most high-profile batter? Oh, God, I should know this. Did I get him out? Don't or did know. he belt did, no. I play against him? did I play against him in the tournament? No. Oh, crikey. Okay. There's another clue. Um, was he West Indian? Was he West Indian? Can't tell you. Oh, is it Chris Gale? Oh! It is Chris Gale. And do you know what the worst thing is? Um... Guess who was the leading wicket taker? Not Chris Gale. No, <laughs> Sarwan. No. Oh, he's bowling them filthy leggies. <laughs> yeah, he's been doing all sorts. Um, qualify either? Did they not? No, get past, no. they didn't oh, get past the group stage. Uh, yeah, I mean, you were quite right to to guess that. They had a hell of a team as well. Yeah, so um, yeah, so the, the the batter went on to have a reasonable career. Yes, <laughs> both that yeah. tournament. We, it, ironically, we talked about the under nineteen World Cup a few weeks ago. <laughs> it was with Did you really? Yeah, yeah. I say, yeah. I was like, you've just been coaching. Yeah, no, exactly. He was like, <laughs> I, had to, I had to jog the memory a little bit, but he's done. He's played quite a bit. Of, played quite a bit. Of cricket, <laughs> he's had. He's had a lot of run since then as well. <laughs> yes, he has. Um, question number three. Um, you got. Four hundreds, four first class hundreds. How many first class fifties did you get? Thirty-three. Oh, you undersold yourself. 
41 was the correct answer, unfortunately. Left eye and dry, 37. <laughs> to, be, to be fair, I think it, it needs an assessment because I think it's 34 first class and seven list A. So I can only ask the questions that have been put in front of me. So if you <laughs> come that up, Robbo, then you should actually take Franksy's two quid from that one. All right, yeah, <laughs> I can manage that. <laughs> um, you have a highest score of 156 for Farnsfield. Who was it against and in what year? <laughs> I love the wide eyes. He's like, shit. <laughs> no, I don't know. You can tell when someone scored gazillions of runs because they can't remember. <laughs> I always remember my top scores because they happened so infrequently. <laughs> it was either 2005 or 2006. Oh. I think it was probably 2006. Was it Knott's Prem or was it Basselor? It will. It... I can't. I can't give it away um, with that. <laughs> well, it's only me that exactly, knows where this yeah. team plays. Was it a good, it so, a good pitch? <laughs> it is a good pitch. It's a small ground. Anston. It was Anston. What year was it though, Huge? Oh, might be a bit later than that then. Well, go on. What, what year? <laughs> Might be 2009. No, 2012. <laughs> but it was at Anston. I'll tell you what. Yeah, it was Anston. Yeah, yeah. hell of a game as well. You got 335, and they, uh, well, they got 338, yeah. and you lost getting, getting it 335. It was quite a tasty game, actually, as well, because there were quite a few locals in. Um, we were top two in yeah. the league as well. It got a bit lively, that. And when I got out, I remember being sprayed by a few locals out of, who'd had a few pins. <laughs> They're not, and they're no. not the locals you want to get no, sprayed for either. At that point, I was just backing off a little bit. I just left them to it. <laughs> Asking the ump if you can have another go. Can I stay out here, mate? <laughs> and finally, uh, affectionately known as the general with a Twitter handle of at the general underscore eight. How many followers do you have? Never broke the five thousand barrier. So I think it's something like 4,950, 4,960. We'll give you that one. We'll give you that one. 4,948. It's a bit like my beloved Mansfield Town. We always settle on the same number every year. Lose a few few followers, gain a few followers. Don't take it too controversial. So, uh, well, two correct, um, but actually... Three correct because Robbo's going to pay eight quid and then Paul's going to pay four quid to the Lord's Taverners. Um, Franksy, Pike, the Strong general, um, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, mate. Thanks so much for taking mm. the time Brilliant. Uh, to come on. I'm sure that it was probably like relief from uh, self isolation after having come back <laughs> from uh, the Middle East. But, uh, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and we look forward to seeing you for some uh, stick and ball in the summer. Thanks, gents. Pleasure. Awesome. Cheers, Pike. No problem, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Uh, and following the uh, conversation, the wonderful conversation we've just had with Paul, here are a note from our sponsors at Woodstock Cricket. Looking for a new cricket equipment partner for yourself or your club can sometimes be tricky. With so many options to choose from, how do you make the right choice? When you want quality, value and service, There really is only one place to start. For more than a decade, Woodstock Cricket have been producing award-winning, 
high-performance cricket bats from their Shropshire workshop. Matched with their classy soft goods, luggage and accessories, Woodstock Cricket really do tick all the boxes. Get in touch with Woodstock Cricket and find out why many loyal clubs, players and international customers can't be wrong at info at woodstockcricket.co.uk.